Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. Today, I'm up with the reintroduction of one of my all-time favorite preheated bakes, and it probably won't surprise you since I've been talking about it since we first whipped it up back in Season 1. And speaking of all-time favorites, we've got more faves from listeners that span four years of baking. So put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet talk. Stefan, we are sharing some of our listeners' favorites over the last four years in the run-up to our big 200th episode. Yeah. One that is particularly timely to mention right now is our eggnog from episode five. Yes. Listener Clark mentioned this one, and you might think to yourself, well, my goodness, Andrea, why is this timely? It's October, and I don't have Mm. eggnog Mm. in October. Mm. Andrea, why is it timely? Yes. Well, it's because it is an aged eggnog. Yes. And October is a great time to make it. Now, it only needs two weeks to age, two to three weeks, but you can age it up to two months. And I was Mm -hmm. reminded of this recently. I belong to a Facebook group called the New York Times Cooking Club. Yeah. And someone posted in there a different recipe. Now, Stefan, you recall which recipe we use for the aged eggnog, correct? Oh, absolutely. It's from Sun Liquor in Seattle. I think it's one that you found and you and your husband had perfected, and you're the one who brought it to preheated, if my memory serves me correctly. Yeah, you know, Andrea, I think we brought it to you even before Preheated started. It's also a fun one to mention because it's one of these things that you and I both made independently, but of the same recipe for yes. years, too. And and we had both, um, yeah, we had recommended it really highly to you and you loved it also. That's right. Well, the New York Times person who posted recommended a very similar recipe, and it comes from Alton Brown. Okay. So if if you do a search for Alton Brown's aged eggnog, you'll find it there. And it's very similar. It's got four large eggs, which you separate, a third a cup of sugar, a pint of whole milk, a cup of heavy cream, and then bourbon and rum and the freshly Mm -hmm. grated nutmeg. Our recipe also has cognac, so I like that. (laughs) We've got a little bit extra in there. A little bit of everything going on. Yes. And what I found was so fun about the posting that I read about was something that had happened to me, and so I was glad to see it confirmed. Hmm. If you drink this two to three weeks after you've made it, you definitely Mm -hmm. taste the alcohol. Yeah. But if you triple or quadruple the recipe and make a Mm -hmm. lot of bottles and one of them gets lost in the back of your fridge and you don't try it until, hmm, I don't know, six months later, oh, you don't taste the alcohol at all. It's still really, really good. But I'm so curious about that. It's like, what happens to the alcohol? Does it just evaporate or dissipate? Or I'm not really sure about that, but I did find it kind of interesting. Well, my crucial follow-up question is, even though you didn't taste the alcohol, did you feel the alcohol? (laughs) Oh, that's a good question. You know, I only had a tiny sip. 
Okay, because perhaps the the more telling experiment would have been to go ahead and pour yourself a glassful and see if indeed that alcohol had just come somehow disappeared or was still there, but not as you know, taste, the taste wasn't as at the forefront. Yeah, it was June. And so <laughs> it's not really eggnog I just, season. I just, <laughs> you weren't in the mood. I couldn't stomach a glass full of eggnog <laughs> at that point of the year. But I also wanted to make a quick note because I know some listeners get anxious when they think about yeah. us drinking something with raw eggs in it. And yeah. I really trust Alton Brown. He does a lot of science on his recipes, and he assures us in this recipe that the alcohol will kill anything that you're worried about. So it's okay to make this aged eggnog and drink it even if it's not heated. And you can use pasteurized eggs if you're really worried about it. Go ahead and do that. Yeah, and I think one thing that we mentioned in that episode, and I've certainly said over the years, is before my husband started making homemade eggnog, I thought I just didn't like eggnog. Mm-hmm. I had only ever had the beverage that appears kind of at holiday time in the States, in the carton, like the milk carton, and it's it's something else. And, you know, it's what it is, and, and maybe that's a holiday tradition, but the real deal, triple boozy make it yourself, age it for six to eight weeks. It is one of my favorite things now. And you only have, you know, we only make it at holiday time, as you just mentioned, like it's not what you want in the summer or other times of year necessarily, but it is definitely worth it. And, you know, for all the years we've been making it, we've never had a single problem. It's the second week of October now, but even toward the end of this month, first week of November is when I'm starting to think about putting up my first batch. But, you know, hey, do it now if you want to be toasting that much earlier into the holiday season. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Andrea, in the lead up to our 200th episode at the end of this month, we thought it would be fun to talk about what our favorite show title has been over the years. I definitely... I knew immediately when I thought of this question, there is no contest of all the great titles. My favorite is Hot Buttered Yum, episode 68. That's when we did King Arthur Flowers Soft Pretzels. And not only were those amazing, but I just love that title. And in fact, that was a bread month and March of 2018. The other titles were pretty darn good too. Uh, No Need Indeed and Two for the Dough, also favorites of mine. How about you? I have a few favorites as well, but before I share those, I want to make sure the listeners know who the real writer is in our partnership (laughs) here. If there's a title that you like, chances are about 99% that Stefan's the one that wrote it because my titles are usually much more factual. And boring. Well, that was a funny thing over the years of doing this show, Andrea, because you were always like, okay, we have to be like really succinct to get on the search engines. And I'd be like, but I want to call it like, you know, crazy for chocolate or (laughs) trying to explain to you that no one's searching for hot buttered yum. (laughs) Correct. I know. I know. I know. But there it is indeed. But we don't care. We don't care. I love it. So two of my favorites. One is episode 14, Biscoff 10, Willpower Zero. (laughs) And I love that title because it encapsulates so well how both of us felt when we Mm -hmm. discovered Biscoff. Yes. Neither of us had had the cookies or the Biscoff cookie butter before we did that particular episode. We made that totally Biscoff pie and... I don't know about you, but that started a journey that has continued to last over the last four (laughs) years for me. 
Well, me too. And I have not recreated that pie, which if you go back and listen to that episode, I mean, it was a doozy. It was this multi-step, really complicated pie. But what I have done and what we've done together is bake with Biscoff and just eat it with a spoon out of the jar. So it's been a constant companion since that episode. Yeah. But my truly favorite title is episode 64, Nothing Says I Love You Like a Savory Pork Pie. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think is a quote from me that I said in that episode and then you turned it into the title. (laughs) It just makes me laugh so much. And listeners, I know you've heard me share this before, but my husband really likes savory food more than sweet food. All these four years of recording, my husband would see me in the kitchen and say, you know, what are you about to make? And the answer was usually like a cake or cookies or ice cream. Right, right. And he'll eat that stuff, don't get me wrong. But the day I said like, I'm making a savory pork pie, his eyes just lit up (laughs) and he was so excited. He was like, oh, this is your preheated this week? Oh, when are we having it? What are we doing? Let me see what you're doing. So it was a big hit. You know, that pork pie, it was Paul Hollywood's from his Pies and Puds book, (laughs) which I dearly love that book. And that was around Valentine's Day. It was kind of a Valentine's Day episode. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, why we were saying, you know, make this for your Valentine. Mm -hmm. But my daughter especially loves that. And she just requested it again the other day. It's really perfect at fall because it's very cozy and very warm. And the dough on that pork pie has apple cider, hard apple cider, alcoholic uh, cider in it. That's right. It's a really nice one if you're looking for like a fall pot pie this time of year. Yeah, because nothing says I love you like a savory pork pie. (laughs) It's just perfect. Well, Andrea, so all month long we're talking about listener favorites and your and my favorites from the past 200 episodes. And it's my turn for a greatest hit. And I'm going to reintroduce... No surprise to anyone who's a longtime listener of this show, the chocolate chess pie from Christine at Spicy Southern Kitchen. It has been a Thanksgiving regular, and that was from the first of our three pie months. That would have been in February of 2017. We said it at the time, and I went back and listened to this episode as well, and it just, I just was rolling around. I was laughing so hard. We said, how dangerous could it be to put what's essentially a brownie into a pie crust? (laughs) Pretty dangerous. (laughs) Pretty dangerous. I pulled out my recipe because I had to go scavenging for this. Of course, I could put my hands on it right away. It's just in my uh, easy access folder that I put favorite recipes in my kitchen. It was there, and I've just noted Thanksgiving 2017, London. Thanksgiving 2018, London. Thanksgiving 2019, London. And you know it'll be coming up for Thanksgiving 2020 in London is chocolate chess pie. Are you going to be able to find the cocoa powder that you like to use? Andrea, one of the things that I bought during the pandemic was a large quantity of cocoa powder. I think several episodes ago, you had admitted to buying a lot of, was it maple syrup? It was steel cut oats. (laughs) The steel cut oats. (laughs) Still kind of, I knew it was like a breakfasty thing. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I did the same with cocoa powder. So okay. I could make chocolate chess pie for the next several years, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, one thing, and, and I should go on record as saying, I think of all the bakes we've ever done, this remains my son's favorite. He requests it whenever I'm making a pie. He is disappointed if it's not a chocolate chess pie. If you're not familiar with this, another really fun reason it's a greatest hit for me is that it's in this category of desperation or pantry pies. And I think we've done such a really nice job of highlighting those over the years. And it couldn't have been easier. I think in the episode 
when I'm reviewing it, I say it took me like seven minutes, you yes. know, aside from the crust. Right. The other reason I like to make it at Thanksgiving, Andrea, is because it calls for two-thirds a cup of evaporated milk. Well, I always have evaporated milk at Thanksgiving because I'm making a pumpkin pie. Yes. So I usually am able to use it up and have nothing left. If you haven't had a chocolate chest pie, I highly encourage you to make it. I think it's listener Carolyn who makes it with her sons or her sons make it for her, which is even better. It's so easy, super delicious. Yeah, absolutely. My first greatest hit. I had no problem identifying what it was going to be. One of the things I enjoyed upon re-listen was you talking about how you enjoyed the part of the instructions where she tells you to bake the pie for about 45 minutes and that there will still be a little giggle in the middle when you (laughs) shake it. And you said, I don't know if that's a typo or what, but I just love that idea. Well, Stefan, I just pulled up the recipe and I can tell you it must have been a typo because now it says there will still be a little jiggle in the middle when you shake it. Yeah. (laughs) It will always be a giggle to me. (laughs) So Kristen, I think, listened to our episode and maybe changed that. Um, I know that I mentioned I found this pie to be very dangerous because it Mm -hmm. is like having brownies and I will eat the entire thing. So I have not made this pie again for myself and my household, but I have made it for other people. And I want to point out the one thing that I have found to be true as well as the people who made comments on the recipe, and that is it's best served after setting up overnight. Yes, that is true. And that's something that we mentioned on the original review. You cannot eat this one. Well, you could do whatever you want, but it's not best hot out of the oven like a brownie might be. You want it to to set. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And that's another reason I think Thanksgiving, because like a pumpkin pie has to be chilled overnight. At least that's how I do it before I serve it. And so again, it's just like a nice timing wise, ingredient wise Goes in the fridge, ready the next day. I love chocolate chest pie. Yes. It's like almost time to make it again. I'm so excited. I know. And for Thanksgiving, I'm always looking for things that can be made ahead and that do not need the oven on Thanksgiving Day. Totally. So this one ticks both of those boxes. Remember, we'll have a link to this recipe in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 198. And The chocolate chest pie originally appeared in episode 16. You can find both of those on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as in our Facebook listeners group. Okay, Andrea, so it's time for some more listener greatest hits. And we heard, well, we heard so many fun ones, and it's been so fun to just research this month. But here comes the lemon drizzle cake from episode 45, submitted by listener Lydia, And that episode was called Citrus Success. This drizzle cake really kicked off not only your love affair with a drizzle cake, it was from a cookbook you gave me. It was called Deliciously Vintage by Victoria Glass. This has been in heavy rotation, I know, in your house over the years because you are such a lemon lover. It is often tried and photographed and reported on in our Facebook group. So I wasn't surprised at all that listener Lydia submitted it. Stefan, one thing that I'm just realizing now that I didn't know when I gave you this cookbook, Mm -hmm. you mentioned when we were talking, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, about the James Beard Baking Book Award winners. And there was Mm -hmm. a book that had 
I think it was the gluten-free book and it had 102 recipes and you said, oh yeah, oh, I just love cookbooks that give you that in the title how many recipes you're having. So the subtitle for Deliciously Vintage is 60 Beloved Cakes and Bakes That Stand the Test of Time. See, you just knew it was the perfect gift for me. (laughs) We had not even... Conceive the idea of preheated when I gave you this cookbook, nope. and it was still so perfect. So that really made me smile. This was one of the first recipes that I had the experience of using self-raising slash self-rising flour. And yeah. I do believe you were living in London by the time we made this recipe. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I think you said that that's where self-rising flour is much more common than it is in the U.S., Yeah, I see it in so many recipes here, much more than I ever did in the U.S. So it's a very beloved ingredient here. And of course, lemon drizzle is a very beloved tea time treat here too. You will often see that in coffee shops and tea shops or on a tea tray. So it was really nice to have that heritage bake, another thing we have loved to highlight over the years. And it was lemon. So that totally, I mean, I think of all the times we've mentioned your love of lemon on the show, it (laughs) was... It would just be this like arm's length list. And whenever I think of this, I think this was a whole citrus month and we did a lot of really fun things. And you've continued to come back to that recipe over the years too. I have. And here's the thing that might surprise listeners. I love this recipe when I made it. I make it all the time. I awarded it a blue ribbon at the end of season one. Yeah. And I still consistently have not been able to solve the sinkage in the middle problem. Which gets a lot of chatter on the Facebook group too. So it happens to other people and no one else can seem to solve it. Yes. So maybe that's just how this cake is. I mean, does it detract from your enjoyment of it? Well, the fact that I keep making it would (laughs) answer that question, I Say otherwise, yes. I make it a lot, well, I used to make it a lot for bake sales. Do you remember bake sales? (laughs) Oh, I do. And so when I made it for bake sales, I made it in those mini uh, little paper loaf tins. And Mm -hmm. I never had a sinkage problem, but it also was so tiny. It was kind of hard to tell, if you know what I mean. When I make it in my mid-size loaf tin, so I have a three-pack from Sur La Table. I think they're four by six, but don't uh, hold me to that. I don't have the sinkage problem. It is when I make it in my regular big, whatever you call it, nine by five, Mm -hmm. Pyrex bread baking loaf tin that I have the problem. And I have purchased my first bag of self-rising flour because the one thing I've never done is use pre-purchased self-rising flour. I've just always made my own. Right. I'm determined to try and see if maybe that's the trick. But I love trying to figure it out. It doesn't bother me. The sinking does not affect the flavor at all. Nor does it seem to be a problem for the people who have tried it. You know, it's a kind of a head scratcher, but the taste is so amazing and the very vibrant lemony flavor. I think it's an easy recipe as well. It's one of those bakes that's really good year round. Yes. You have said in the past too how much you really like the lemon flavor in the summer. You know, you can use it in a trifle. You can use it with grilled fruit. I mean, there's so many other ways to serve it as well as it just being really good on its own. In January, when the Meyer lemons come out, oh yeah, I feel like that adds a little extra, a little something extra. It's really good then. I have two more things to say about the lemon drizzle cake. Yes, please. I mean, you could go on probably longer than this episode too. You love it so much. Both of these are related to the fact that this is 
a UK recipe. And so it's a terminology thing. First, I want to comment on the fact that it's called a drizzle cake. And Mm -hmm. after I had this, I was like, why is this not the most popular item in every bakery in the United States? It is so good. Why don't I see drizzle cakes? Okay. And one thing I have realized over time is that in the U.S., we would call this a lemon syrup cake. Well, because you are pouring the hot syrup on, or what about a poke cake too? It might also be called a poke cake. Yeah. So it's just a terminology thing. It's not that we don't do this technique of taking a warm cake, stabbing it all over. (laughs) Still love that. Right. And then pouring the hot syrup in. I think in the U.S., and I could be wrong here, but this is just a theory, so work with me on it. I think in the U.S., when we say drizzle, we immediately think of that white confectioner's sugar topping icing that would go on the top of a cake and drizzle down the sides. Whereas when we take a hot syrup and pour it into the holes in the cake and you don't really see anything when you're looking at the cake from the outside, that's when we call it a syrup cake. So that's my first theory is that if you like this cake and you're thinking, why don't we have more of this, start looking for recipes for syrup cake or look in your bakery for a syrup cake and I bet you've got about the same thing. Good point. Oh, wow. Linguistic challenge here. (laughs) (laughs) My second terminology thing, if you look at the recipe that we posted online, I even wrote, stir the lemon juice and sugar together in a jug slash pitcher (laughs) with some question marks. Because again, I found that very confusing. But as we discovered when I watched Gemma Stafford's video, she calls a Pyrex measuring glass a jug. Yep. Here's the funny thing, Stefan. Every time I make this lemon drizzle cake, I use my Pyrex measuring glass. Of course you do. You are already using the jug, Andrea. I have been using a jug <laughs> since day one. I just didn't know it. Oh, a rose by any other name. I mean, <laughs> it's... <laughs> I love that it's taught us so much. It has. It really has over the years since episode 45. Citrus success. Thank you, listener Lydia, for bringing that one up. That was a really fun memory for me. Well, the next listener greatest hit, Andrea, is more recent also from episode 164. This was submitted by a few people, uh, listeners Marcy and Low Wolf, and that is the easy 10-minute tiramisu you just mentioned, Gemma Stafford. This is the recipe that really introduced her to preheated fans. That's the first thing we made and reviewed on the show in an episode titled Terrific Tiramisu. 10 minutes we kind of had an issue with. I have on mine that it was more like 30 to 40, but still didn't matter because it was so delicious. I did the chocolate version. You did the standard version. Both were major hits in both households. And I had mentioned at the time kind of controversially, this was during Italian month earlier this year. This year? Yeah, that was this year. I know. Time is flying. It was it was February. Oh my gosh. I had controversially mentioned that I wasn't a huge tiramisu fan, but clearly I had never had Gemma's 10-minute tiramisu because I sure am now. When I re-listened to this episode, my first thought was, how on earth have I not made this again? Because it was so fabulous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And everyone in our house loved it. And it was so easy. My second thought was... Haven't we done a great job with Valentine's Day? I hope we've made some real love connections through our bakes over the years. (laughs) I just want to pat myself on the back for that one. Because wouldn't you just fall in love with someone who served you this tiramisu? (laughs) 
I agree. And I saw that listener Rosemary made this, and it was a couple of weeks after Thanksgiving, and she chimed in to say it definitely was quick and easy, and it is a make-again recipe. So I think this one was a hit not with our families, but with some of our listeners as well. The nice thing we've said in the past about other Gemma recipes, she she says, you know, here's how you can do this kind of quick. Here's how you could expand this if you want it even more homemade. And one of those was to make your own mascarpone cheese. And listener LeWolf actually did and had great success. So if you have a little more time, want to try your hand at making that cheese to go in, I mean, how it would just take it, I mean, it would just skyrocket even further. It would be fabulous. I know. I also really want to, when I make this a second time, I want to do what Gemma did in the photos on her website. She piped the cream on top in little dots. Yeah. Yeah, it's real pretty. I'm looking at my paper recipe because, you know, I print out the recipe and make notes and scrawl on it. And it's covered with the coffee because you dip the lady fingers in the (laughs) coffee. And so clearly I was like dribbling over the... (laughs) over the paper on the way to my dish. But, you know, I'm not a coffee person. You guys have known that for four years. And the coffee really just softens up those lady fingers, which are kind of crisp biscuits, and you don't taste it. I had the chocolate in mine, which was so delicious. Andrea, this was a no-bake. It's also no eggs if you're not a person who eats eggs. So there was a lot to like. And then introduced us to Gemma, which was another big win. Stefan, something that I'm thinking of trying this fall is using something that we made, mm, I think it was maybe season Mm -hmm. two, and I still have it in my house. You still have something we made? I know. Don't be frightened. Okay. Do you (laughs) hope it's not more eggnog? (laughs) Well, that's possible. If I went through my uh, garage fridge, that could be there. No, I'm talking about the cherry cordial. Do you remember that? The cherry bounce. I sure do. Cherry bounce. Thank you. I knew there was a cute title for it. That made quite a big recipe, and I did enjoy it when I made it. And then I put it in a hall closet because I wanted a nice dark place for it, at which point I completely forgot about it. Mm -hmm, Right. So my husband pulled it out recently. What I'm thinking about using it with is one of the variations on this 10-minute tiramisu, which Mm. Gemma gave a variation for a 10-minute berry tiramisu. And so I'm thinking I could make it with... I've got those Italian jarred cherries that come in that really sweet liqueur, Uh and I'm thinking if Uh I mixed in some of the cherry bounce with that. Mm. My kids are huge fans of a Black Forest cake, which is cherry and chocolate. So if you like that too, you could do the chocolate variation and put it, soak the ladyfingers in the cherry there also. Oh, I didn't even think about that. You know, I have to look at the berry version. I just assumed that it's not soaked in coffee, right? That that would not be. Yeah, I don't think coffee and berries. No. It doesn't sound good to me. <laughs> no. Okay, okay. I'm looking here at the yeah. recipe and that is confirmed. And <laughs> There is no okay. Okay. coffee confirmed. in there. But she does recommend two tablespoons of creme de cassie. Mm-hmm. And that is where I think I'll use my cherry bounce. And then instead of, she is making this with raspberries, blueberries, and strawberries. And I might try and make it with my Italian cherries. Oh, why not? Yeah, report back on that. And, you know, maybe just take a little sip, though, of the cherry bounce first. (laughs) Or serve it on the side. Also serve it on the side. Yeah, Yeah, but before you dip all your lady fingers, like, if you know. Right. (laughs) Maybe it hasn't aged as well as, like, eggnog. Who knows? I don't know. That was a fun month, too. That was cherry bounce. And, Andrea, I think you're going to know this. 
The author of Cherry Bounce, we then rediscovered her, and she wasn't really a beverage person at all. She was famous for something else, Kathy Barrow. Kathy Barrow is a famous chef. She writes a column for the Washington Post, and she is a pie lady. Pie so lady. she wrote... That's what it was. When Pies Fly and Pie Squared. And Pie Squared is the book that brought her on my radar because it's an entire book about slab pies. I just, you know, it's just, it all knits together, doesn't it? This huge history we've created. I just love it. Stefan, one thing that did make me laugh upon re-listening to this episode was one of my challenges throughout all four years of Preheated has been reading a recipe through to the end or reading a recipe carefully. And there are times when I think to myself, yes, finally, after four years of baking every week, I've really got this down. And yet, here we are, episode 164, and I made this recipe, and I couldn't figure out why my lady fingers were crumbling and falling apart. Oh, yes. As I dipped them into my steaming hot <laughs> coffee. Ding, 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 ding. And it was only as we were recording the episode, and you said out loud, coffee room temperature, that I went, Ugh. Well, because they were, your cookies were like falling apart, weren't they? And you were like yes. burning your fingers because it was freshly brewed hot coffee. Yes. I mean, the aroma must have been fantastic, but yeah. You're like playing hot potato with your little lady finger. Oh, goodness. I know. So live and learn. What do we call it? Learning and laughs. Learning Success and laughs. And failures, learning and laughs. And here we are, episode 164. I wanted to bring that up to point out. Even when you have a failure, a lot of times a good recipe will compensate and let you overcome that. So not a single person who tried my tiramisu said, oh, these cookies are soggy or oh, they're crumbly or oh, they're Mm. falling apart. No one had any idea. Sure. I was the only one who knew that happened and I had a few little burn marks on my fingers. But otherwise, a really good recipe is something to treasure and hold close because it allows you to make little mistakes and still serve up something delicious. So thank you to the listeners who not only tried that during the bake-along week back in our Italian month, but also to listeners Marcy and the Wolf who submitted that as their greatest hit. It was really fun to revisit that one. Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get the sprinkles on top of this episode. We release new episodes every Monday morning and next week the hits will just keep on coming as we discuss another of our all-time favorite bakes, a delicious treat that was the start of an ongoing love affair for me. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, where we're at Preheated Pod. If you like our show, please rate, review, and recommend us on your favorite platforms. Until next time, I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Thanks for listening. Be well and sweet dreams.
Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. And Andrea, I think you're going to know this, and if not, we'll edit it out.